ora koutou and welcome to Primary Matters, a podcast that looks into the things that matter to the primary industries. I'm Carol Stiles and in this series, Hook, Line and Sinker, we're taking a dive into Aotearoa New Zealand's seafood and aquaculture industries. Today I'm with visiting Canadian aquaculture and seafood enthusiast Emily D'Souza. I asked her how she describes what she does. I I feel like I answer that question different every single time someone asks me. I think the easiest thing that I tell people is that I'm a fishery scientist and I run a communication and education business that um, teaches consumers about sustainable seafood. Pretty good, right? (laughs) But there's more. Emily's won many awards for her work in seafood and marine conservation. She has a travel and food blog, all centred around sustainable seafood. And she's a dive master and freediver and works with scuba divers to raise awareness about healthy oceans. Emily, who's in her 20s, has a huge following on social media and Aquaculture New Zealand's Margot Nice says she was the ideal choice to be the keynote speaker at their recent conference. We had been following her on, on Instagram and on LinkedIn for quite some time. We reached out to her. She'd never been to New Zealand. She was massively enthusiastic. I mean, aquaculture is relatively new in New Zealand. It's been here for about, you know, maximum 50 years. There were a bunch of people that came through. They were innovative. They, were, they just did what they could to get the industry going. And now we need those young people to start coming through, understanding what aquaculture is really about. Emily is the sort of person, she's out there telling those stories and communicating to young people what aquaculture is doing throughout the world. And we wanted to get her here to be able to tell those New Zealand stories. Thank you. Today we're on a barge in the Hauraki Gulf with team members from Clevedon Coastal Oysters. They want to show Emily how oysters are grown here. Hey, uh, welcome aboard everyone. Tim's my name, you know that. I'm playing captain today. Any questions? Fire away. Everyone's comfortable? And uh, there's water, some little uh, chairs to sit on. A jacket, life jacket I said, if you feel comfortable wearing it, wear it. And enjoy the day. Questions? Ask Jacob. So yeah, as Timbo said, we're going to go to Waiheke Island. Um, we've got a longline farm over there, so we're going to give you a look at, I guess, a couple of different farming styles as well. And it's a lovely day, lovely area, so it should be a good, good little tour around. New Zealand's aquaculture industry is worth $510 million in export revenue annually, and that's expected to grow to $700 million in five years' time. Demand for seafood is growing around the world and Emily believes the future of food is blue. She says the world needs aquaculture. I think first and foremost our population is growing quite rapidly. We're expected to be almost 10 billion people uh, by 2050 which is, is quite a lot of mouths to feed. And as we also know, our current food systems have a, a pretty significant impact on the environment. Land-based food systems, you know, um, they create a lot of biodiversity loss with the amount of land they use, the amount of water that they use. And the reality is our planet is 70% water. Um, and so we have this incredible resource here with the ocean and the ability to produce a lot more food if we're able to you know, sustainably and thoughtfully expand aquaculture production we could feed all of those people in that growing population in a more sustainable way. A lot of really cool research has shown that, you know, sustainable aquaculture production could actually increase the amount of seafood that we can produce by something like 21 to 44 million tons per year. It addresses the the issue of 
population growth and food security while simultaneously addressing the issue of you know, sustainability and not exacerbating existing environmental problems like climate change. So in New Zealand we have three main species that we farm. We have oysters, mussels and salmon. What else could we do? That's a great question. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, it's it's hard for me to say because I think that, you know, the king salmon here is obviously so special and so different from anywhere else in the world and the green mussels. And so uh, I definitely think there's more than ample opportunity to continue growing and cultivating those phenomenal species. But I've recently traveled around the world over the last, you know, I've really spent the last 18 months touring different aquaculture farms all around the world and so I've been exposed to a lot of different species. I was in Central America and I got to see some Campachi farms and some Cobia farms and then no, I don't uh, even know what they are. Yeah so they're they're really cool. Campachi is actually in the Cereola family so I think it's a bit similar to uh, to kingfish which which you have here in New Zealand you're doing a little bit of farming of kingfish as well and so it's a very delicate flaky fish it's delicious whereas uh, cobia actually is a bit of the um, the opposite it's a bit tougher it's a bit more media it's a steak like texture that cobia and really I love cobia as well because it's really difficult to mess up when you're cooking it. You could, people joke that, you know, you could have a few beers and forget about your Kobe on the stove and it will still taste good. So yeah, there's a lot of, of different species that are popping up in aquaculture. I was also just in Greece and there they're actually farming some of their native species, their Mediterranean species, things like sea bream and sea bass. And the question of, you know, what to farm next, if you were to branch outside of those, you know, salmon, mussels and oysters, I think it would really be a question of, you know, what's gonna perform the best, what's gonna be the most efficient and, and also what do people want to eat and how could we make that work with the existing natural environment. I think that there is tremendous potential here in New Zealand's waters, especially, you know, when we talk about things like going uh, offshore or open, open ocean, that presents a whole new level of possibilities for aquaculture. And, you know, New Zealand has this tremendous coastline, has a ton of coastline um, and this amazing access to this amazing water that would be perfect for aquaculture and yes I would say barely scratch the surface is, is, is a good way to put it. <laughs> Where are we now Jacob? This is Awawaroa Bay um, on Waiheke Island. This is our oyster longline so our subtitle longline. Hanging oyster trays would be the best way to put it. They were always in the tide here and you can see that the turquoise colour is the ocean rich plankton that comes in and that's what makes the oysters here so special. They're forever um, feeding on that and so they um, grow exponentially. One of the problems, not a problem, when they don't come out of the tide, they don't have any muscle condition. So we'll take these oysters and then um, put them in the tide so that they're actually left high and dry and they have to pucker up for the right words to actually get some muscle condition. It makes a, a plumper oyster, turns into a bit, has a bit of muscle. So, uh, so more texture. Yeah, and it actually um, holds its form a lot more. Yeah, yeah. I'm uh, excited to learn more about this style of oyster farming because it's not something that I've seen before. I mean, I'm from Canada, and so I hesitate to say this, but this might be a little bit more beautiful <laughs> than any of the other oyster farms I've ever been on. I've never seen anything like this. It's it's breathtaking, and I mean, we we're blessed with such a beautiful day today, so which just the icing on top. <laughs> now, you've just spent months and months traveling around the world looking at different forms of aquaculture. Mm -hmm. What have you seen that's working really, really well? 
Some of the biggest things I, I think are in relation to regulations and uh, and government support for aquaculture. I think when governments are able to understand industry and work with industry and have this really collaborative relationship, and where I've seen aquaculture be successful, those countries and those areas are poised to be the leaders of, of our future food systems. You know, they're innovators, they're on the front lines, and decades from now, people who didn't start now or didn't start, you know, 5, 10, 20 years ago are going to look back and, and wish that they had started sooner because these are really the pioneers of the new frontier of food. Emily says more than 50% of seafood eaten globally comes from aquaculture. However, she says it's deeply misunderstood. I've never felt that the seafood industry does a particularly good job of communicating um, and actually sharing what it is that we're doing and really being transparent, which is why it was so important for me to to come out and actually visit these farms in New Zealand to, to get that transparency and that understanding. And so I think Really, that's how this all starts is just, you know, hey, why don't you come out to our farm and see what you're doing? See what we have in place to protect the environment, the different monitoring that we have. And and government can look at that and say, oh, you know, that's actually really great. That, you know, surpasses or maybe we're surprised to know that you do this much. Or maybe government has other ideas and says, you know what, you're almost there, but maybe we can support you and provide, you know, X, Y, and Z resources so that your monitoring is up to our level. And then, like I said, you bring in these other stakeholders from scientists and the general public and communicators and marketers and and everybody else, uh, retailers, food service, then you have this really holistic conversation in which everybody has something to contribute um, and can work to address any concerns, whether they're environmental or otherwise. Aquaculture farms need not be in the sea or near it to produce seafood. No, I mean, absolutely not. Like I said, I've seen some really interesting land-based operations, which are, you know, obviously not on the sea or near the sea. I was visiting actually... I believe it's the world's largest, if not North America's largest, aquaponics facility, and they're located in the middle of the United States of America. There's no ocean in sight, but they have this really impressive aquaponics facility where they have, you know, recirculating aquaculture technology there and are producing fish for the Midwest, which is, yeah, remarkable. And I actually live not on an ocean. I I live near Niagara Falls, Canada, and so we're fortunate enough to be on the Great Lakes, which, you know, still a massive body of water, but not an ocean. And Ontario actually has a very large aquaculture industry there where we produce mostly trout, but some other species as well. And some of that is being done in the Great Lakes, very similar to the way that we would see salmon farming in the ocean, uh, but some of it is also being done on land as well. Good shaky sound. Okay. <laughs> um, so you've just pulled up a basket. Yeah, these are these are babies that were caught started this year. So these are from the Kaipara. So these have gone through a couple of cycles now on land. They were only about fingernail to I don't know the end of your thumb size when they first came out. These are all a fair size and a fair few of them. Quite low mortality and a decent size for stuff that's caught this year. We'll leave these out here till they get a bit bigger. I think the biggest thing that I really wanted to communicate to the attendees of the Aquaculture New Zealand conference was this idea of storytelling and communication. And like I said, unfortunately, this is an area where the seafood industry has historically struggled. And it hurts my heart a little bit because I, like you said, I've been fortunate enough over the last 18 months to travel the world and I have seen 
the most amazing seafood stories from all corners of the globe. And I feel, you know, a bit heartbroken that these stories aren't more easily accessible to the average seafood consumer because they are fantastic stories of innovation of thought leaders of you know coastal communities really taking their economies and their livelihoods and their culture into their own hands and so what I really wanted to communicate um, at the conference was that I know New Zealand has these fabulous aquaculture stories and you know I'm, I'm so grateful that the team at Aquaculture New Zealand um, has taken me out over the last week or so to, to see them firsthand um, and to hear them directly from the farmers mouths and I really wanted to reiterate to the conference attendees that, you know, we need to get these stories out there because consumers are curious. Um, they are really interested in where their food is coming from, especially today's seafood consumer is remarkably different from the seafood consumers of, you know, 20 years ago, even 10 years ago. They're demanding a, a level of transparency that hasn't really existed in the seafood industry. And they, they crave authenticity and connection. And so being out here and being able to speak with the farmers and show people, you know, this is what an oyster farm looks like in this beautiful, amazing landscape, um, you know, show them what lies below the surface. It's it's powerful. Um, this is not the time to be humble. Um, you know, really brag about what you're doing because there is some incredible stuff out here and people want to know and they want to celebrate it. Emily D'Souza. And Emily is really enthusiastic about pesca tourism, travel that benefits coastal communities and introduces people to sustainable fisheries. Emily has a website. It's seasidewithemily.com. And I'm Carol Stiles. You've been listening to Hook, Line and Sinker, a series in MPI's Primary Matters podcast. Thanks for listening. Kia pai tera. Mm-hmm.